Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons. To support this independent podcast and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. And thank you so much if you're already a member of our Patreon. We need to transform in the United States several hundred million acres where we're growing genetically engineered corn and soybeans for factory farms. We need to convert these lands back to what they were before the the European settlers came, which are, you know, prairies and grasslands. That was Ronnie Cummins, who co-founded the well-known Organic Consumers Association and its affiliate in Mexico via Organica. We've been talking a lot about regenerative agriculture here on the podcast, and Ronnie is also a leader in that space as a member of the steering committee at Regeneration International and the author of his new book, Grassroots Rising, a call to action on climate, farming, food, and a Green New Deal. What's become really clear is that with the lack of action taken by our political leaders, we need to mobilize everyday people from the ground up. So Ronnie's going to talk about his path to building a grassroots movement of millions of organic consumers, why he views fake foods like fake meat as a false solution to addressing the issues currently caused by agriculture, how this new regeneration movement can help to unify our varied siloed movements focusing on different aspects of our social and ecological crises, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I grew up in southeast Texas, near the border of Texas and Louisiana on the Gulf Coast. And this is an area that is called Cancer Alley. The reason it's called Cancer Alley is because there's so many oil refineries and chemical plants and plastics factories. It's become infamous over the last hundred years for industrial development and corporate pollution. It's also well known for hurricane activity. And a few years ago, you may have seen some of the footage of the hurricane in Texas that flooded the whole Gulf Coast area and released a lot of the toxic chemicals from these oil refineries and chemical plants. So I grew up seeing the environment right in front of my eyes, originally a a very biodiverse wetland. I used to build to catch fish and shrimp and crabs right on the, the Gulf of Mexico near my house. And then over time, I just saw it getting more and more polluted to the point where we didn't even eat the fish anymore. Mm -hmm. But thank goodness, my grandparents had an organic farm in East Texas. So I used to be able to to go there every weekend and in the summers where I developed a real love for farming and farm animals and an appreciation for how small farmers can really produce a lot of food and all the food they need and how Small farmers, if they cooperate together, can really, you know, have everything they need. So I definitely decided I did not want to work at the oil refineries or the chemical plants like most of the kids in my high school 
were going to do. So I studied hard to make sure I could win a scholarship to to get out of there. And uh, that's what I did. And once I got to college, I came into contact with the civil rights movement, the farm worker justice movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement. I became an activist, uh, pretty much a full-time activist ever since the year 1967. I gradually decided to move from Texas because there was a lot of uh, very difficult being an activist, an environmental and peace activist in Texas. I ended up in the Midwest and first in Wisconsin and then in Minneapolis and northern Minnesota. About 21 years ago, I founded an organization called Organic Consumers Association dedicated to educating the public about the uh, horrors of industrial agriculture and factory farm and, and promoting organic and what we later have come to call regenerative agriculture. So as you just mentioned, you are the co-founder of the well-known nonprofit Organic Consumers Association. What do you think has been the most profound issues that people first learn about or that you tell people that flips the switch from them not really caring to them wanting to become an active participant in this movement? Well, I think up until the last few years, the primary driver was a consciousness about the health, the health advantages of organic and grass-fed agriculture, and also the environmental consequences of what we've done over the last seven years with this so-called modern farming, the green revolution. So that brought a lot of people into the organic sector. In 1992, when I first started working on national campaigns around organics, I think we were selling a billion dollars worth of certified organic food a year. And then now it's about $50 billion a year a market. It's over 5% of all the grocery store sales and about 10% of all the fruits and vegetables. But about five years ago, I mean, for me, it was more 15 years ago, but the public started realizing that this climate change was a climate crisis and more recently a climate emergency. And so I've helped establish a global, a U.S. and global network called Regeneration International. And a group of us from around the world set this up in 2014 at the, the giant climate march in New York City. People like Vandana Shiva from India or Hans Herren from Switzerland, Andre Lowe from Australia, myself, the CEO from Mercola.com, Rodale Institute, iPhone, a group of others. We realized that our food system and our land use system was not just a minor contributor to the global climate crisis, but was actually a major contributor And we realized that we had to start educating food and farming activists, whether they're consumers or farmers, about climate issues and the the politics of climate issues. But we also needed to educate this large and growing new climate movement around the world about the role of food and farming, not only industrial food and farming and causing the climate crisis, but the really positive potential of regenerative organic farming and ranching and land use to actually reverse global warming and solve the crisis. We have continued this work now for five years. 
when we first started talking about regeneration and natural sequestration of carbon through the photosynthesis of plants and and grasses and, and landscapes, not very many people had ever heard about this. But now it's become an important topic of discussion, even among leading contenders for the Democratic Party nomination for president. And it's an integral part of the Green New Deal, which has been put forth in the U.S. Congress as a comprehensive program to not only solve the climate crisis, but to ensure that we have a just economic transition to a green economy. And so I focus quite a bit on this connection now, food farming and the climate crisis. Right. And I think it's important to note that this organic movement is really great and necessary, but it does not necessarily help address issues with carbon, I guess, leaching from our soils into the atmosphere. Right. When people say, hey, what is regenerative food and farming? The simplest way is it's the next stage of organic food and farming. There's already a tradition of taking care of the soil and not using environmentally destructive chemicals and appreciating biodiversity, allowing animals to to exercise their natural behaviors, animal husbandry, if you will, in organic. But we didn't understand when we first started the modern uh, organic movement, we didn't understand a lot of things about the soil and about forests and about the climate crisis that we know now. And so basically, we're trying to upgrade USDA organic standards to be regenerative organic. And we're finding a tremendous enthusiasm on the part of consumers and young people, especially uh, for this new trend. There's no, it's no exaggeration to say that regenerative agriculture, regenerative organic agriculture is the hottest current topic in the alternative food community. In a recent article you wrote that published on Mercola, you expand upon this statement and title by Dr. Joseph Mercola, ditching nature in favor of fake foods is not the solution to destructive factory farming. Understandably, many people have become really frustrated, appalled, and disgusted by the ways that conventional agriculture has diminished life into commodities and exploited plants and animals with no respect, empathy, nor understanding of the land's ecology. And of course, hearing about how all of agriculture is pretty much driving or contributing to climate change doesn't help either. So lab-grown foods that try to invent something new that doesn't directly come from nature or animals, for example, fake meat, has become all the rage as it's touted as the future of food and something that can help us to address so many issues surrounding unethical and unsustainable food production. Why do you consider fake meat and also the idea to abolish livestock false solutions? Well, first of all, I, I was a vet practicing vegetarian for 40 years, from 1970 until 2010. The reason for that was I was disgusted by factory farm agriculture and the chemical intensive crop raising that produces the animal feed for these animal prisons. So I, like millions of others, felt it was important to take an ethical stand against this type of system. About nine years ago, I was convinced by regenerative ranchers 
uh, who are really practicing what they preach, that I was being a hypocrite if I'm a climate activist and I refuse to eat meat that is raised in a regenerative fashion where the animals are helping sequester carbon and restore the environment. And it was at that point that I began, again, to occasionally eat meat and, and animal products. I had always just consumed organic dairy or eggs. I didn't eat factory-farmed fish, only wild-caught. But I became a, a regenerative consumer, and that's why I still am. If I go out to a restaurant, typically, unless it's an organic community restaurant, I do have to order like a vegan because I'm not going to eat factory farm meat or milk or animal products. But that does not mean that a fundamentalist vegan position, I agree with the vegan position of never eating factory farm food. But when you look at the situation on the earth and where we're at, We've got about 8 billion acres of pasture land and rangeland, much of which are severely degraded. And then we've got about 4 billion acres of cropland. We've got 10 billion other acres of forest land. If we're going to reverse climate change, we have to regenerate all three components of our global landscape, cropland, pasture land, and forest land. And the thing about most of the pasture land and rangeland in the world uh, you wouldn't know this as well in the United States, but most of it in the world is not suitable for crops. There are one billion rural people across the world, for example, in Mexico, where I spend half my time working, that uh, have lands that don't have wells. They have climate and landscapes that are not suitable for growing crops. They have land that they use for grazing their animals. So unless we want to condemn about a billion people to malnutrition and starvation, we've got to look at what they're doing and say, yes, there's a better way to do it. But the real problem are these factory farms that are dominant in the United States and China and the, the consumption of these products in Europe. That's what we need to get rid of. We need to transform in the United States several hundred million acres where we're growing genetically engineered corn and soybeans for factory farms. We need to convert these lands back to what they were before the, the European settlers came, which are prairies and grasslands. Prairies and grasslands, you can only convert them away from row crops and chemical intensive agriculture with a cooperation between the farmer, the rancher, and the animals. So, the way the buffalo roamed, the way the wildebeest roamed in Africa, the way that the keystone species that we used to have in the U.S., like beavers and prairie dogs, we had a very healthy environment ecosystem back then when Native American people were the stewards of the land. We have caused an amazing amount of damage since then, and we've got to get these landscapes back to their natural carbon sequestering fertile state. And we're not going to do that by growing genetically engineered soybeans for impossible meat. If people are going to eat vegetarian burgers, great. But eat one that's made, that's an organic burger, like Annie's or something like that, that's made from real vegetables 
and grains, not something built in a lab using genetic engineering backed by people who have nothing to do with regenerative agriculture. We need to have a strong conversation amongst climate activists, vegans, ranchers, least responsible ranchers, and health-minded consumers. And I think we'll all reach the same conclusion that consuming 220 pounds of meat a year, like the average American, is a horrible practice. You can see it in the health conditions of our people. Eating any meat or animal products that come from a factory farm is morally questionable as well as bad for your health and the environment. But if people are going to consume, there's going to be vegetarians as well as carnivores in our society. We just need to make sure that we replace factory farms and this this institutionalized animal cruelty with having animals back on the land the way they're supposed to be. There are a bunch of, I would say, generalized environmental impact assessments today being done that show how much water use, land use, energy use that this type of meat requires to produce compared to another type or that this type of crop uses compared to something else. And then people say, well, all of our resources seem scarce. So reasonably to minimize my environmental impact, I should maximize the foods that require the least amount of land, water, energy, etc. What do we miss when we leave out the context and the complexity of ecology and different landscapes and draw our conclusions based on numbers on a piece of paper? Well, all the statistics about water use and livestock basically are based on factory farm systems. If you add the rainfall out in the pastures where the animals should be, and the fact that a well-managed, well-grazed pasture is is like a fertile sponge, When it rains, it soaks in the water and it becomes a natural cistern. You know, every 1% increase in carbon organic matter, I believe, is 88,000 gallons of extra water per hectare or two and a half acres. So if you want the landscape, the 8 billion acres of the world that are pasture lands and rangelands that typically aren't suited for crops, if you want these lands to be more fertile and to hold more water, the only way to get this situation is with managed holistic grazing. This is the way to conserve water. This is the way to maintain landscapes. So what really wastes a lot of water, if you look at it, is the factory farm production of corn and soybeans for factory farm feed, and for ethanol. These systems use huge amounts of water that we're drawing up from the aquifers. We are turning the land into something that can only be described as hard as a tabletop, so that when it rains, it runs off, and that's why all the rivers and lakes are brown. That's why we have the dead zones. We have got to slow down and infiltrate the water that's coming down and stop draining these aquifers below the ground that are going to run dry. And we can do this again with organic farming of crops and holistic management of livestock, and then really paying attention to trees. I mean, we used to have six trillion trees on the earth. Now we got three trillion. Uh, And look at what has happened to our environment. Uh, Look at what's happened to the 
water quality and so on and so forth. As this United Nations program, the Trillion Tree campaign points out, we've got to plant over the next 25, 30 years back a trillion trees that we have whacked down uh, over the previous centuries and incorporate these into our agricultural system the way they used to be instead of I mean, I was just in Iowa for the Iowa caucuses. You you drive for miles, you don't see a tree, you don't see a single animal, even though there are thousands and thousands of animals cooped up in these CAFOs or factory farms. It's like we got to get the tree cover back out there, incorporated into the pastures and the cropland, and we can do this. This is not rocket science. This is just planting trees appropriate species and taking care of them, paying attention to the environment and restoring our watersheds, wetlands. It sounds like context of the land base is really important. So when we're talking about water use, water use in a region where it naturally rains a lot means something different than water use in a really dry climate, right? And of course, water use on a piece of land where the soil is healthy, the roots of the plants are really long, so the soil can hold more water compared to water use on a piece of land that's been degraded and where the water runs off as soon as it hits the ground. There's so many intricacies there that we can't really just look at this one number, oh, it uses this amount of water and draw a conclusion based off of that alone. Exactly. In the face of our climate emergency that we talked about earlier, a lot of people are scared, stressed, and sometimes they feel powerless because the big guys in every industry with the greatest impacts aren't really budging, and they often have a chokehold on politics. In your new book, Grassroots Rising, A Call to Action on Climate, Farming, Food, and a Green New Deal, you lay out a blueprint for building and supercharging a grassroots regeneration movement based on consumer activism, farmer innovation, political change, and regenerative finance. Oftentimes, I feel like there's a disconnect between all of the separate issues that we each feel called to support. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on how a regeneration movement may be able to help us to unify these siloed movements that are currently focused on different issues at hand? Yes. Well, what we have now typically in the United States and in many countries, we've got a peace movement over here, well-intentioned, can make very good arguments about we should have a peaceful world and get rid of all the nuclear weapons and cooperate instead of fighting. Okay, we've got an economic justice movement that is making the you know arguments that are obviously so true that 1% controlling the 99% and hogging all the resources is not the right thing to do. We've got a climate movement talking about the emergency we're in. We've got a food and farming movement talking about how eating healthy food is the way we can preserve the environment and that, you know, economic justice for farm workers and small farmers is important. We've got all these. We've got a Medicare for all movement. We've got a movement after movement after movement. Unfortunately, most of these movements are operating in silos and isolation from the, from the other movements. The bottom line is that we need to connect our needs, our desires, our demands. We need to present a holistic alternative because we have a radical crisis of the system. This is just not a minor crisis. I mean, our health crisis, if you're very ill, seems to be the most important issue there is. 
The climate crisis, if you sit back and look at this, is extremely scary. If you don't have a job or if you are, you know, the victim of a, of a drug cartel south of the border or elsewhere, those seem to be the emergency, but they're all tied together. And regeneration uh, is such a good term, I think, because it has all these connotations. I mean, we need to regenerate our health. We need to regenerate our ethical and spiritual selves. You know, we need to regenerate democracy. We need to regenerate, of course, the soils and the nutrition in our food and the health of our animals and the health of rural communities. And we can do all these things, but we can only do them if we look at the full range of degeneration that we're trying to reverse and realize it takes four things. It takes public education and mobilization. Without that, we're not going to get anything. It also takes paying attention to the best practices of farmers and ranchers and foresters and educators and natural health practitioners. We've got to scale up these best practices, but it also takes political change and power, political power. In the United States, we have over 500,000 elected public officials and appointed public officials, all the way from school boards and conservation districts to city council to county board to state legislators to federal people. All 500,000 of these politicians need to feel the support if they're doing the right thing and the pressure, if they're doing the wrong thing, which most of them are, if we're going to change things. we got plenty of money in our economy to have a sweeping regenerative Green New Deal. I mean, the tax money that politicians are allocating, that's our money. The money in our banks and credit unions and pension funds and retirement accounts, that's our money. It is not the prerogative of, of bankers and fund managers to say, oh, we're, we're only going to invest money in the Fortune 500 corporations who are maintaining this degenerate status quo. No, we have to change the financial structures in our system. It's very encouraging that we have this global divestment movement from fossil fuels. Over $8 trillion now have been taken out of the fossil fuel industry by colleges, universities, cities, investment funds. But we've got to reinvest this money into regeneration. And also, we need a divestment movement out of corporate agribusiness and factory farms. It's to take your money out of ExxonMobil and invest it in a giant food corporation like Cargill or Walmart or, or whatever, that's no better. So we need to, to think comprehensively, investing in the military-industrial complex and big pharma, uh, Wall Street speculation. This is all a waste of the precious funds we need to make the transition. So what is so great about this year is that we have candidates seriously contending for the White House that are talking about system change, not just minor change. Bernie Sanders' $16.5 trillion Green New Deal platform that includes about a trillion dollars to change our food and farming system is a case in point. Now, people can say, oh, uh, he'll never beat Trump because Trump's going to say he's too radical, he's a socialist, and so on and so forth. I think the polls show otherwise. 
When you have a radical crisis, you don't solve it with minor change. You have to solve it with fundamental radical change. When my parents and my parents' generation were facing the threat of the Nazi takeover of the entire world, they didn't sit around and debate whether they could afford to defeat the Nazis. They didn't say, well, you know, we're producing all these cars and all these consumer goods. Can we really transform our industrial infrastructure quickly so that we can stand up and defeat the Nazis? I mean, did people sit around and say, I'm not sure we can recycle every tin can, you know, every newspaper. I'm not sure we can build these or grow these victory gardens in our cities and produce what was ultimately 42% of our vegetables and our backyards and schoolyards and parks and that. People, when they faced an emergency in the beginning of the 1940s, they rose to the occasion. They cooperated on a global scale to solve this. And I would maintain that the current climate emergency is even a bigger threat to our existence and our children and grandchildren than the Nazi onslaught was, and that we have to get organized and deal with this. There's no price tag on survival of the human species and the extinction of over a million species that are now uh, endangered. And just like in the New Deal of the 30s, we can easily pay for what we need to be done because we're going to create more jobs, more taxpayers. A green economy is so much more efficient and less damaging than a fossil fuel economy. A food system that's organic and regenerative is going to drastically reduce our disease, our health care costs, the damage to our environment, our water, and so on and so forth. The Green New Deal that we need will actually pay for itself over several decades and make our lives much, much better. From my understanding, our current farm bill has these incentives that actually encourage unsustainable agriculture practices and that kind of skew the playing field in favor of big chemical-laden agriculture. Do we know if the Green New Deal is able to address this imbalance within the system? Well, Bernie Sanders' plan, Elizabeth Warren's plan, the legislation put out by Cory Booker and others correctly points out that our agricultural system, our food and farming system is broken. It's not just in need of minor repairs. It needs an overhaul, and it's going to cost some serious money to overhaul it. Bernie's program has over $800 billion in it to transform our food and farming system from the current degenerative system, harming our health, our environment, destroying the environment, treating animals cruelly, exploiting farm workers, and so on, to one that we could be proud of. Like organic food. It's not like people in the United States don't know that organic food is better than chemical food. I mean, all the polls show that. Poor people understand that even better than middle class people, according to the poor. If people had money in their pocket when they were at the checkout counter in the grocery store or the co-op or the farmer's market, I guarantee you there would be a lot more organic food and regenerative food in their basket. But if you can't afford to purchase 
quality food if you've got to cut corners because you don't have enough money because you're paying your mortgage, your student debt, your rent, extremely high costs of transportation and so on. That's the, the problem. When I was growing up in the 50s, the average household in America spent 30% of our income on food. And most of the food we bought back then was from our local grocery store, and it came from a 100-mile radius, and it was basically organic. And the meat and animal products that were for sale 50 years ago, 60 years ago, were typically grass-fed or pasture-raised. Even according to the government, the foods back then were so much more nutritious than they are now. I mean, you'd have to eat 10 apples today if they're not organic to get the same nutrition you got from one apple back in the 50s. So nowadays, the average American household pays 10% of our income for food. We spend half of that eating out in restaurants where the food's even worse typically than it is if you if you purchase it at the grocery store and cook at home. The question is not that organic food and regenerative food cost too much. It should never cost less than what it pays the farmer and the worker in the food chain a fair wage for doing things the right way. The problem is we need free public education. We need health care which is free or nearly free. We need our debts erased if they were caused by the greedy big pharma or the education institution. We need $15 an hour minimum wage, at least. We need a system which doesn't destroy our health. If all these things are in place, as they will be under a Green New Deal, people are going to have more money in their pockets, and I guarantee you they're going to spend some of that money they have in their pockets on higher quality food. That is going to have an enormous impact on rural and urban America and our health and the climate. Well, the regeneration movement really inspires me personally for all the multifaceted issues that it can address at the same time, even beyond the carbon sequestration piece, beyond getting to eat healthier foods. It can also help to revitalize our rural communities and help to decentralize power within food. At the same time, because every community, when they're able to regenerate their own landscapes, they will basically have more sovereignty and self-determination from being able to access their own food, being able to grow, have these things in their own community. So then that might lead to less global conflict because so much conflict is sparked by competition over scarce resources. So I guess just all of these things are tied together to show that supporting the regeneration movement really goes far beyond the soil, which is really important, of course, but we can do so much with this movement. Yes, and I think I think we need to understand that we are one global community, all of us together. If you look at what scientists point out, I mean, if I look at my own experience as a farmer in the global south, we can sequester a lot more carbon in the tropical areas of the world and the, and the semi-tropical areas of the world than we can in North America and Western Europe. And this is simply a fact that things grow faster and larger uh, in these areas. It's also a fact that the degraded areas of the world, the 40% of the semi-arid and arid areas, 
that have been so eroded and degraded and overgrazed that they can quickly come back to health uh, under regenerative practices. So the majority of the carbon is 300 billion tons that we need to take out of the atmosphere and put back into the soils and trees and grasses where it used to be. The majority of this carbon sequestration and this climate restabilization is going to take place in the global south, not in, not in the Western Europe and North America. So it behooves us to pay attention when someone like Bernie Sanders puts a $300 billion section of his Green New Deal to helping countries in the global south develop their own green economies and their own green more regenerative agriculture, that's extremely important. We've got to realize the only national security issue that really matters is the climate emergency. We need to stop this nonsense about how Russia or Iran or China or Venezuela or Cuba are a threat to the United States. The threat to the United States is our climate-denying profit at any cost government and the multinational corporations that put their profits ahead of our survival. We've got to turn this climate emergency around and do it really quickly starting right now in 2020. The whole world is looking at the United States. Are we going to continue to allow climate deniers and earth rapers to run our government to allow corporations that are care only about the profits in the next quarter to run our economy? Are we going to step up to the plate like we did in the 1960s in an earlier generation of youth activism and make system change? If we can do that, I guarantee you all the countries in the world are going to sit up and take notice. All the people of the world want peace they want regeneration. They don't want war. And we will see major change. And we must see major change starting right now, today. They're mining for gold, but all I see is steel. Could it be part of the deal? She's sweet as sugar, but wait until it rains She can turn very bitter flame Spitting woods in the atmosphere, they breathe in monochrome White-collared criminals will reap just what they sow And now the fields are barren Where do we go? Where do we go? From here, from here, from here, from here. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, we concentrate a lot in the regeneration movement on social media and the alternative media to get out our message. So Organic Consumers Association or organicconsumers.org and regenerationinternational.org. I read every day things like Common Dreams and Truth Out and Counterpunch 
and Mercola.com. I pay attention to the, especially the positive stories coming out across the world. If you look beyond the mass media, beyond the depressing doom and gloom news, you will find inspiration. And as I point out in my book, the number one practice we all have to develop is to start looking for the positive developments out there and figure out how we're going to scale them up with education, with political action, with transformation in our investment and financial communities. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I'm lucky enough to be able to work half the time south of the border and half the time up here and spend a good part of my time outdoors and running co-directing an organic and regenerative farm, both in north central Mexico and northern Minnesota. I take a walk every day in nature for at least an hour and a half. I spend as much time as I can around farm animals whom I love, and I make a point of spending as much time around young radicals, uh, both in Mexico and in the U.S., as I can. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Just to make sure that I get at least two hours worth of walking and exercising every day. What are you working on right now to elevate your regenerative impact for our planet? I spent the last three years writing this book, Grassroots Rising, and now I'm going to spend most of this next year traveling around uh, the United States and North America talking about this book and meeting with climate activists, food activists, regenerators, and supporting political candidates that are talking about these issues like Bernie Sanders. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? that we have a global climate movement led by youth who are not going to give up. Well, to our listener, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Ronnie's work, you can head to www.organicconsumers.org or also regenerationinternational.org. And definitely be sure to check out his book, Grassroots Rising, at chelseagreen.com. I'll have all of their social media accounts and URLs linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us today and for all the vital and really important and inspiring work that you're doing. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I say in my book that we, we had a, uh, a saying back in the 1960s, which I, we repeated over and over again, and it was that there's only one reason for becoming a revolutionary, and that's because it's the best way to live. They're mining for gold, but all I see is still so cleverly concealed. All that glitters isn't always gold Where's the credit in what they sold? Glide in the silver line in rivers far away It streams in the youth as they line up by the gates And now the fields are barren Where do we go? Where do we go? From here